It's always emotional to come back to a church you've served at for 19 years. I am a reluctant preacher. I would have preferred to never have uh, preached. Uh, I would have preferred for my life to uh, be on a horse all day, every day, uh, all my life. Uh, I still uh, just love being on a horse. Uh, when I became a Christian, however, back in 1990, uh, it, very soon after that, I began to realize that God had called me and gifted me to uh, preach the gospel. And so we decided that, okay, God, we know that calling is on our life, but we're totally not going to raise our kids as preacher's kids. So God, we'll raise our kids on the ranch, then I'll go to seminary and become a preacher. Thank you very much, God. Don't bother me now for the next 15 years or so. And uh, one, uh, the second week in July of 1992, I received a call from the founding elder uh, who started Mitchell Berean Church back in 1959 in his home here in Mitchell. His name was Harry Wilson. And he called and said, our church is small. We don't have a pastor. We've even thought about closing the doors. Uh, but your dad said you'd come preach for me this Sunday because the guy who was going to fill the pulpit has got sick. So could you come preach for us? So we made the trek down 82 miles to Mitchell, and I preached a really simple sermon. I'd only been a Christian a couple years at this point, a really simple 30-minute sermon called Trust and Obey. I still have notes for it in my uh, uh, file. And I got done preaching and we sang Trust and Obey, because what else, if you're going to have name a sermon, Trust and Obey, you've got to sing that old hymn. And we sang that, and I prayed, and I said, Amen, we'll be dismissed. I'm never going to see these people again. Uh, I get to go back to my horses now. I've preached my one. And two of the elders, that Harry Wilson and another guy, Walt, came down the middle aisle with their arms around each other, crying. Of course, my immediate reaction was, did the sermon stink that bad, you know? <laughs> And they came up to me and they said, we want to repent. I'm like, huh? I didn't even use repent in my sermon. They said, we know we're a legalistic church. We know we're dying and we, we know we haven't really been reaching out to our community. And would you become our pastor? And the Holy Spirit in that, in that moment, they've had this encounter with God. And I had an encounter with God. And my, my response to that encounter was laugh nervously and say, no, <laughs> I'm going to raise our kids. We're going to raise our kids on the ranch. Then I'm going to seminary. I, I, I will not become your pastor. And they said, well, would you please then, would you fill in until we can find a pastor? And reluctantly, I agreed. And so each week we would drive down and I'd preach. And each week they would come up to me and they were like, we see God's hand on you. Would you become our pastor? And the Holy Spirit began to work in Diana's lives, and we began to realize, yeah, I, I really should say yes, but I didn't want to. My repeated responses to those encounters with God through Harry and Walt were like, no, I'm, I'm comfortable on the ranch. Horses are not nearly as big a pain to deal with as people. <laughs> and cows are awesome compared to people. No, God. And so I began... now. I began to give excuses to Harry and Walt. I'd be like, well, yeah, maybe in a few months after I get, get these calves straightened out. 
And each week, God would begin to like, no, Scott, you need to accept this call. And my encounter would be like, no, thank you, God. I'll just keep lying to these people. That's really what I was doing. I wouldn't have said at the time that I was lying. But looking back, I realized I was just lying. You know, you and I's response to our individual encounters with God have profound influence on our life, don't they? I've prayed that every one of you would have an encounter with God here at this corporate worship gathering today. It was the first of November. It was a cold morning. I saddled up a horse I named Rodeo because I'd bought him off a bucking string. I thought I had the buck out of him. I saddled him up and was going to ride him down to the It was a Monday morning after I'd preached and said no to God yet again. I was riding this horse down and I went through the steep little draw and I come up out of the draw and the keeper broke between my front and back cinch, which is this handy dandy, really important little strap that keeps a back cinch from going back on a horse's flank area. And it broke. And when Rodeo comes out of that, that, that draw, he blowed in two and went to bucking across a sagebrush flat in northern Sioux County. And I'm, I'm riding him. I think I got him. I got him. This is good because he was bucking in a straight line. Anybody can ride a horse in a, in a straight line usually. But then he jumps to the left, takes a big swoop to the left buck, and then back to the right. And I fell off on the left side. And I hung up this leg in the stirrup. And he went to bucking and dragging me across that sagebrush flat. And I had an encounter with God. And in that encounter with God, God was like, quit playing games with me and my holiness. You know I've called you to be a pastor and you're giving lying to them people, those sincere people. Don't play games with me. And I remember in my encounter with God, saying, God, if you will get me out of this alive, I will serve you the rest of my life, no matter the cost. Eventually, my right leg spur caught in a piece of sagebrush, and it jerked me out. And I lay there on that ground, and I can remember saying, I'll serve you, God. I'll serve you. I'll serve you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for for, for stiff-arming you. You and I's response to our encounters with God have great impact on our lives and other lives. Your response might not be getting bucked off a horse in northern Sioux County and drugged through a sagebrush flat. But each time we say, no God, when he specifically speaks to us, it usually doesn't end well. He will do something, not because he's mean or vindictive, but because he loves us and wants his way and will in our life. And for us to accept those unique assignments that he's given us in life. The the, the majesty of God dictates that you and I really respond rightly. I love Psalm 93.1, which says, The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. We're talking about King Jesus here, ultimately. This ultimately is a prophecy about King Jesus. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. 
Remember that word majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. A low view of God can stiff arm him. A low view of the majesty of God can shrug our shoulders and keep living just how we want to live. But a high view of the majesty of God does something to us. Majesty in the Hebrew word here is, is, is hard to define because it's this all-encompassing word. But it means the comprehensive acknowledgement of God in his power, in his creation, his presence, in his holiness. In his grace and love and sovereignty and faithfulness, pursuit, salvation, and revelation. Huge long definition for one word, majesty. But I want you to get a sense, when you encounter the majesty of God, it's encountering him in his power and in his creation. Think of his creation. We've all had encounters with God out in his creation, probably. Look at the stars, and we think, man, there's a God. And God's word says he's got every one of those stars named. Or, or look at a baby being born, and we're like, God, you're God. There's, there is a God. And God in his majesty, in, the, in, in this all-encompassing word, you and I need to learn to respond in humility and surrender to his majesty. I've noticed in my life and in other people's lives that a right response to the majesty of God works its way out into our lives in just really practical ways. And I'd like to delineate those, and I'm sure, uh, you know, I'm sure this service is not near as big a sinners as the other two that I preached at, but, but maybe these will connect with you too, or if not, just think I'm preaching to myself. But our, our right encounter with God burns away complaining. When you and I are whiny, self-complaining, self-centered jerks, we've lost sight of the majesty of God. When you and I just complain about everyone and everything, when the culture of our marriage, like if I could ask your spouse, for those of you who are married, and, say, and they could be honest with me, and I would say, hey, is your, would you define your spouse as a complainer? Would your spouse say, yeah? It's real easy to develop that culture in marriage, isn't it? It's real easy if you're a single person, to have a constant self-talk of just complaining. It's, it's part of being a sinner. Is life all about me and my wants? We've made an idol out of our comfort, and so consequently we have to complain. But then we encounter God in his majesty, and we begin to see that he is going to burn that out of us. That we can't live this self-centered life of thinking that life has to be about me and my needs and my wants. My preferences take, take precedence over the way and will of God. No, God burns away complaining when we respond rightly to his majesty. I think of the Apostle Paul when he was falsely and wrongly imprisoned. And he writes this letter to the church at Philippi and he says, Do everything without complaining and arguing. If there was a man who had a human reasoning to be able to be a complainer, it was Paul. Instead, he says, do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Friends, 
I'm around non-Christians all the time. I always like to ask non-Christians, what do you think of us Christians? They usually can be pretty honest. But one of the things they say is, man, you Christians fight a lot, a lot of weird things and complain a lot. That is how they view us. Friends, may we encounter the majesty of God so we're different at work and not join in the complaining all the time. So that we begin to reset the culture of our individual family in such a way that we're not just defined by our complaining and whining. Because Paul says, so that no one can criticize you, live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Friends, you and I shine in a totally different way when we respond rightly to the majesty of God and say, I really want to whine and complain, but I'm not going to. I'm going to be a person who brings hope and health into this situation. I'm going to quit having our entire family unit when we get home from work or school just be one of complaining about this teacher or that coworker, etc., or this, this politician. That the, the very fabric of life based upon our right response to the majesty of God, our complaining begins to be burned away. A second practical outworking of a right response to the majesty of God, is that it it begins to reveal our cynicism. Life makes cynics of us all. A a cynic is a fault-finding critic. A cynic has a running dialogue in their mind constantly of good grief. That'll never work. Oh, she's wearing that again. We're singing that song again. Oh, my spouse will never change. They never have. They never will. It's easy to be a cynic. Not, in fact, there's very, it's just plumb easy to be a cynic. But to be a person who grows out of that reveals that we're responding to the majesty of God. Many cynics just self-justify their way out of it. Well, I'm just being a realist. Well, you might be a, be a realist, but if your cynical heart constantly causes you to have an unending running dialogue of, of, of fault-finding with everyone and everything. Some of you even right now may be sitting here being critical of me. Just a, you're just a cynical person. How's that working out for you? How's that working out to bring joy and peace in your life? One of my favorite Bible characters is Abraham. Abraham back in, the, in Genesis. Remember Abraham. He believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. Remember, Abraham was, was told by God, you're gonna, I'm going to move you to a country, a new country. I want you to leave where you're at and go to this new country. And Abraham's like, well, well that's good, God, but I, I need a kid. And God takes him out and says, Abraham, look, Abram at that point, Abram, look at the sky. See those stars up there? You're you're going to have descendants innumerable like the stars. Abraham had this radical faith with what he knew at that time period in history. It's not like he could open up the Bible like we get to. But God rewarded his faith at that point because he decided, even though he blew it a lot in life, we always see that Abraham always came back and built an altar and worshiped God 
and, and the Bible explains Abraham's faith in the New Testament in amazing ways. Abraham never wavered, it says in Romans chapter 4, verse 20. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promised. And loved ones, maybe today an encounter with God says... I'm going to start believing you again, God, and your promise. For that kid of mine that strayed. For that, that tough place we are at in our marriage that you can heal. For that, as a single person, I'm going to believe you, God, that you can allow me to embrace this season in my life with humility and purpose instead of constantly living for the what if or how come or just wait. A right response to the majesty of God begins to burn away our complaining and reveal our cynicism. And we begin to say, oh, I want to believe like Abraham. All of us, every one of us have these impossible situations in our life, right? If we could be honest, every one of us has these just plumb impossible. Die and I got them too. We're no different than you are. And it's so easy just to become a complaining cynic over them. But I keep getting challenged to believe God with a holy audacity that you're a God who keeps your promises. That you're a God who, do, who does the, he takes impossible situations because you're the God of the possible. And I, I would encourage you, maybe for some of you, who've just be, maybe you're just a cynic and it's hard not to become a cynic. Maybe you've been a part of a church for a long time, this church even. Hey, man, you talk about easy to becoming a cynic or you get involved in a local church. Because it's full of hypocrites and losers. That's usually just the ones on staff. <laughs> right? It's hard to keep the faith when you're involved in a local church. But I'm telling you, the repeated response of a faith like Abraham begins to have that holy audacity that begins to change the very fabric Sometimes just in our approach to understanding of the situation, and sometimes God changes the situation and does a miracle. The third response. A right response to the majesty of God is that it begins to create this healthy culture, both in our inner culture, in our inner person, and in our, then into our individual families, and then into our church, and even into business and work relationships. The majesty of God works its way out into the practical outworking where a culture, which is the behaviors from our collective beliefs and values, begins to change how we view God and each other. A healthy culture of joy and grace, a healthy culture of emotionally, growing up emotionally healthy out of the family of origin wounds. When Di and I came to Mitchell Berean back in 1992, we didn't know much, but we did know that we wanted to help Mitchell Berean have a culture that no matter who walked through those doors was going to feel the love of Jesus. That we were not going to be a church of little, nice little white middle class Americans, but we wanted people from every color, every ethnicity, everybody who considered the Scottsbluff Valley their church home, that they would feel welcome here. And it wasn't our job to meet them at the door and tell them how screwed up they were, but to meet them at the door and love them and let Jesus begin to work in their heart. And I believe that culture is still part of the fabric of Mitchell Berean. 
and you need to keep it. But that culture gets developed because individually and then collectively, our right response to the majesty of God is to say, change the culture of my heart. Not to be the cynical critic, but change me so that I can look at, at, at that person and you love them just as much as you love me, God. To look beyond those people's faults and see their need. Oh, my friends, a right uh, response to the majesty of God creates a unique culture. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, this is talking about the early church. And if you remember back in Acts chapter 1, they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. It's a church of about 120 people, okay? 120 people is the church. And they're praying, and the Holy Spirit comes, and God does miracles, and it's an amazing event, and the church is born. And then Peter gets so excited, the Apostle Peter, and he preaches, and 3,000 people get saved. So the church goes from 120 people to 3,120 people, roughly, overnight. It grows from a tiny church to a megachurch overnight. And what was their culture like in the early church? Look at with me. Acts 2.42, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In our context, devoted themselves to the word of God. And to fellowship. The Koinonia fellowship that allowed people to be real and raw and honest and then encouraged by their, their fellow Christ ones to grow up and out of their junk. True, authentic Christian fellowship is, is, is an amazing d- dynamic in establishing true Christ-likeness. And the sharing in meals, the sharing in a simple meal together does miracles in people's lives. A culture that, where we invite people into our home and have, have connection around a meal does miracles of establishing the proper culture. And they took the Lord's Supper together. We're going to do that a little later. And they prayed together. That is a healthy culture, my friends, based on a a right response to the majesty of God. A a fourth area that we begin to see God practically work his majesty out in our life is that when you and I see God in all his awesomeness, we begin then to say, oh, you've got some unique assignments for me in my life. He clarifies our call. All of us have a call or an assignment or two or three or four or five in life. You're married? You know one of the God's assignment for your life? Is to love your spouse. That's God's unique assignment for you. Is, to, is your spouse. Are you single? Your call might be to say, God, you've assigned me this season of singleness and I want to respond appropriately because you are majestic and you know what you're doing. You know my heart, but I want to respond rightly to you. We all have a call because we've been gifted by the Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, to serve in a local church. We all have our unique assignments to love our neighbors like we love ourselves, that we all have. Everybody has neighbors. My friends, these unique encounters with the majesty of God, all of a sudden we're like, oh, teenagers? All the teenagers here listening online or are in this room this morning, you have a call from God to honor your mother and father so it'll make go well for you. How are you doing in that? If you're a Christian, you say you're a Christian teenager. 
When's the last time you said, man, you, I, you've called me to be a kid to these parents, and your parents are messed up? Teenagers, when's the last time you, you said thank you or encouraged your parental units? Friends, accept your call wherever you're at, no matter your, na- your age, no matter your assignment. God uses his, his call upon our life to grow us up. And a right response to the majesty of God, to our spouse, to our church, to our, in our singleness, to the world allows us to fulfill the specific assignments. Paul said it like this, I, as a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. That's not, the calling isn't just for preachers. It's for every one of us, and we each have individual assignments. A fifth right response to the majesty of God is it frees us from comparison. You and I live in a comparison age that is blowtorched by social media. (laughs) We can look on our phone and see, wow, they get to go do that? I don't. Wow, they get to post that picture and they're dressed like that? Wow, their body is a lot better than mine. Wow, they get to go on that vacation? Wow, they have the perfect marriage or the perfect family or they're perfectly happy, which is a lie, and we know that somewhat, but then we believe it. Comparison living kills us. It's the cancer that's ruining our culture right now. I'm telling you, comparison is ruining, is the cancer of our culture right now. A lot of, uh, every study is showing that anxiety and stress and depression uh, uh, are just out the roof now. Amongst every age group, but especially amongst the younger people. Anxiety, stress, depression are, are running rampant. Why? Social-fueled comparison. Comparison, my friends, is the root cause of a lot of our anxiety and our stress and depression. And I'm telling you that you can encounter the majesty of God and begin to let him redefine you instead of what the world has told you, that your boobs or your butt are too big or too little. I'm telling you that what you drive does not have to define you. I'm telling you, my friends, that your social status or or if you have a, a spouse or don't have one does not have to define you at your core. Every one of you has been created by God on purpose for a purpose. There isn't a one of you is a worthless piece of junk. God knew what he was doing when, he, when he, he directed that exact sperm he wanted to go into that exact egg and create you. And you and I need to accept that or we can go being defined by what some kid told us on the playground or some teacher yelled at us in anger or some ex-spouse or some parent who blew it. Who's defining you? Is it God through his word that says, listen, I created you on purpose for a purpose. I've transferred you and you trusted in Christ from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You stand before me, God says, as perfectly holy and righteous, not because of anything you've done, but because I see you through the righteousness of Christ. Too many Christians have not internalized of who they really are in Christ And they're just living these comparison-based lies. 
And it's a miserable existence. And quite honestly, if your identity isn't in Christ and in his work for you on behalf, you just about have to become an addict because you can't deal with the stress and pressure. Addictions are symptoms of a comparison-based prideful mentality that infiltrates us and causes us to always feel less than and worthless and so to cover up the shame and the guilt and the pain in our heart, we use porn or alcohol or some drug or overwork or underwork or food or something in order to cope. But then Jesus Christ in his majesty comes along and pursues you and I. In the midst of our addictions... In the midst of our running, he chases us and he leaves the 99 and he comes and he knocks on the door of our heart and says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. The misery of your life is many times defined because you live a comparison-based lifestyle that needs to be repented of and allow the, the love and embrace of a precious Jesus. So you've blown it. So you're less than to, according to the world. I write in that book, I write in that book of my life journey of how I've had to overcome a lot of things of feeling worthless and like a, just a piece of junk. So these are very real things to me. The, the, the right response to the majesty of God is beginning to let him define us so we don't have to live in comparison. The Apostle Paul again says, as for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. He was writing to people who were saying, you're less than preacher because we like Apollos better than you. He was writing as a man who had orchestrated the murdering of Christians. He was writing as a, as a, as a man who had unbelievable amounts of pride in his ethnicity and in his stu stu studies. And then he met the majesty of Christ on the Damascus Road, and God redefined him and revealed himself to him, and he began to realize in Christ, I don't have to go around being offended by everyone and everything and everyone's opinion of me. I, the Apostle Paul ultimately is saying here, I can have a holy indifference to what other people try to define me as. Because I know who I am in Christ. I don't have to prove myself to you or to anyone or even to God anymore because I'm approved in Christ. And so therefore he can say, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. He let God define him, not himself not his mistakes, not other people's opinions in comparisons of him. The sixth reality to a right response to the majesty of God is it calls us to consecration. You and I as blood-bought children of the Most High God are called to live lives of holiness. We are set apart. Consecration means set apart for holy use. And you and I, when we encounter God in his holiness begin to see that grace allows us to begin to not have to live the constant, critical, cussing, cynical way. That you and I, when we get drunk, it's sin. 
that you and I, when we participate in cheating on the expense accounts like everybody else is doing at work, that's sin. And we're consecrated. We're called to live differently. That, 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 that affair you're living in or that living together outside of a marriage covenant is still sin in God's eyes. That's not because he's mean. It's like he has a better plan. And, a, and, and, and that extramarital sex, whatever you're having, whatever you're doing, isn't a, a right response to the majesty of God and his call for consecration. That gluttony that you're participating in isn't a set-apart-for-holy-use way to treat your body. Again, well, there's tons of verses we could use, but in 2 Corinthians 7.1, Paul says, because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit and let us work toward complete holiness because we fear God. Again, the Apostle Paul isn't saying to, to try to be holy in order to earn approval for God or keep approval from God. He's saying in a right response to the awesomeness of Christ taking our place on the cross, that you and I understand because we see God in his majesty and in his holiness, that you and I begin to say, wow, I want you to control my tongue in a different way. That these cuss words I'm using aren't bringing glory to you. That this, this getting drunk to try to handle my stress is an indicator that, that I'm living a comparison life. That this complaining and cynicism is not living a holy life. And then finally, number seven. A right response to the majesty of God makes us never lose the wonder of our conversion. Friends, it's easy as a Christian after you're a Christian for a while. Especially I've noticed in people who become Christians with their when they're really young, their mommy's knee or in Awana, that it begins to become ho-hum. Yeah, uh, Jesus saved me. But right responses to the majesty of God begin to be like, wow, I thank you. Wow, I'm never going to lose the wonder that you chose me, that you pursued me, that you saved me. Oh, my friends, never lose the wonder of your conversion. It's a miracle. Every Whether you were saved at 4 or 40, it's a miracle that God saved you. And we can, we can either worship the mystery of why other people who've heard the gospel don't get saved or not, or we can release that to God and say, thank you, God, for saving me. But God, I don't want to lose the wonder. And God, in a right response, then, it causes me to have a desire for those people who don't know Christ in my life in my friends, in my family, in my neighbors, that they somehow hear the gospel and have opportunity to respond. The majesty of God births within us a, 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 a deep appreciation for our salvation and then a desire for other people to come to faith in Jesus because we've experienced his freedom and his power in our own life. Oh, dear ones, never let Mitchell Berean be content without having a passion to see lost people get saved. New believers are the lifeblood of a local church. Local churches who aren't seeing people come to faith in Jesus get nitpicky and whine and complain and fight over really stupid stuff. 
The local churches who are seeing lost people come and, and, and getting saved, there is a health and a life that that breathes into a local church. Make it part of your continued culture that there are lost people in the Scottsbluff Valley who if they died today face a Christless eternity in hell. Have you wept lately over the lost in this community? Spurgeon, the famous preacher, said it this way, if you have no desire for others to be saved, are you even saved yourself? Good question. Oh, dear ones, are you, are you believing with a holy audacity for that kid who's not a Christian? Are you believing for that neighbor who drives you crazy and you don't even know if you want to be in heaven with them? But then the majesty of God demands that you love them and care for their eternal destiny. My passion for our Berean Fellowship is that we would be a healthy, life-giving group of churches that are interdependently dependent on God in such a way that we are seeing lost people being miraculously born again and changed through the power of Jesus Christ. I'm really grateful the Apostle Paul didn't forget the wonder of his salvation. He closes out a book that he was writing at the end of his life by saying, oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. That's a man who didn't lose the wonder of his conversion. And when you read that rightly and repeatedly, you will see that that was the Apostle Paul's, the heart of Christ through the Apostle Paul for you and I even today. That we would be grateful that our God and his sovereignty saved us. So how are you going to respond today? A right response to our encounters with the majesty of God changes the very fabric of our life. And the beautiful thing about God is that so often he uses a, a multiple different reference points for us to encounter him, doesn't he? It might be getting bucked off a horse. It, it, it might be at a corporate worship gathering like this. It might be looking at the stars or seeing some beautiful mountain out in nature. And it might be, it might be getting up and walking down with your family or your friends and re-remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross. The, 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 these encounters with God, Jesus established this very simple but very complex too ceremony where we could re-remember what he went through. And he used these basic simple elements of some bread and wine And, and, and we can encounter God in unique and mysterious ways by somehow taking, in our context, a little piece of cracker and chewing it, crushing it. Crushing it between our teeth. And yet the Spirit then somehow allows us to travel back to Jerusalem 
and outside of it and see our Lord crushed, beaten, beaten beyond recognition, fulfilling a prophecy made in Isaiah in Psalms that he wouldn't hardly even be recognizable when they got done with him. And somehow an encounter with taking a little cracker and crushing it in our teeth allows us somehow to say, wow, Jesus, this cost. And, and, and we take this little thing of grape juice, representing and symbolizing the blood of Jesus. Again, isn't there a mystery in this? If you're a non-Christian here, you're like, this is nuts. I get you. I used to be there. I used to think Christians were stupid too. But maybe you non-Christians, this you could like encounter God right now and you're like, man, I don't get this all, Jesus, but I, I, I'm yours. I'm in. I believe. You can do that right now and this, this will make a whole lot more sense. But we take this little group thing of juice and we drink it and somehow the Spirit encounters us in such a way that we're standing underneath the cross and the blood of Jesus somehow washes us whiter than snow. Doesn't stain us. It cleanses us. It cleans us up. And we stand perfect before a holy God. Multiple points of encounter with God. He's so gracious. But today, we've been able to encounter him through singing, through greeting one another, through hearing a sermon, and then we get to encounter God through communion. If you're a believer, you are more than welcome to partake at Nichebrian. If you're living in outright deliberate sin, don't play games with God, and you're not going to repent of it, don't play games with God and come take this. It won't go well for you. But if you're a Christian and you have a repentive heart, will you please come and encounter God in these simple elements and rejoice in the reality while there's a ton of mystery to our faith? The reality is I am forgiven by the body and blood of Jesus. Thank you, Christ. I encounter with you. I encounter you and I accept and re-believe. So come. Come. You messed up people just like me. Come rejoice and an awesome Savior who rescued us and reconciled us. Jesus, through your Spirit, who raised you from the dead, fill every one of us with a right response to our encounter with you today. A, a, a surrender, a, a measure of understanding, even though there's still tons of mystery and sometimes we still have more questions than answers, a, a, enough of our faith journey to say, oh Christ, you are awesome. I believe. I accept. I want to respond rightly to you, Jesus, in my encounter with you. So God, do a work through this time. In your name I pray, Christ. Amen.